Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 19th of November. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. It seems like it's all of a sudden, but all of a sudden or not, we are all worried about coronavirus again, and with good reason. The situation in our hospitals and the healthcare system overall is generally very serious. Uh, the current wave is putting an inconceivable strain on the health system. The HSE is under pressure and it is not for the first time. It would have but to have had to deal with four of those waves along with and on top of a cyber track cyber attack. Uh, many organisations just wouldn't have survived through all of that. HSE boss Paul Reid speaking yesterday. The CEO thanked all of the staff who are working in the health service. So I know at this stage are purely exhausted, uh, frustrated and indeed at their wits' ends uh, with all of this. The pressure is not off yet and far from it and all of the metrics give cause for concern. Increasing trend in the number of new cases which meets the threshold of what's clearly rapid growth. Uh, Incidence is rising, including the seven-day incidence uh, rate now greater than 50% of the 14-day rate in 20 of the 26 counties. One in every 41 people living in the Drogheda urban local electoral area has COVID. That's the highest rate of COVID in the country, followed by Carndonna and Donegal and Ballinamore in County Leitrim. Drogheda rural local electoral area has the fourth highest rate and the Laytown, Bettystown area has the fifth highest rate of COVID in Ireland. Yeah, this is certainly the highest level of impact and risk that we've had to manage uh, since COVID landed here. The Taoiseach Michal Martin told uh, the Shannon yesterday that the unvaccinated are filling up uh, the ICUs and people who are vaccinated but vulnerable to COVID are catching it from people who are not vaccinated. Those who end up in ICU, okay, majority unvaccinated, those who are vaccinated have underlying conditions, so the necessity of making sure that the, those who are immunocompromised and who are with underlying conditions, get vaccinated first is absolutely essential. You can't overstate the importance of that because that will reduce over time hospitalisation ICU. But remember, it's not just about the health service. It's about genuinely wanting to prevent people from getting very sick. 
and dying is, has to be the fundamental objective of public health policy. Yesterday, 118 people were in ICU. So what's the big deal, you might ask, if there were 200 people in ICU in January? Uh, back down in January, uh, when we did have those 200 people, patients in ICU with COVID, uh, it was about 10% of the total hospitalizations. Uh, whereas now we're running at about 19% of the total hospitalizations being in patients being in ICU. A very severe, different impact. An incredible statistic in actual fact. Uh, that's Paul Reid, uh, CEO of uh, the HSE, and we will talk about that and uh, some of uh, the other issues relating to COVID in a moment. We're joined uh, by Helen McEntee, who's a Finnegal TD for Mead East and the Minister for Justice. Good morning, Minister, and thank you for joining us. It's obviously... Uh, a crisis on top of all of the crises uh, that we've lived through over the last year and a half uh, and uh, perhaps we can talk about COVID in a moment uh, but uh, can I ask you to start uh, this morning by talking to us uh, about the opinion that came from uh, the Advocate General to the European Court of Justice yesterday and it, it seems as though that legal opinion given to a European Court indicates that uh, the evidence gathered in the case of uh, Graeme Dwyer was illegal under European law. Uh, This could have very severe consequences, significant consequences. What are your thoughts on that, Minister? Well, good morning, Michael. Maybe just to to outline, I suppose, and people would appreciate the fact that this is still an ongoing case, the the Graeme Dreyer case that you've mentioned. So I won't maybe get into specific detail there, but what we heard from the Advocate General yesterday, um, I think, was probably expected in the recommendation that was made and that will have to be taken on board by the European Court. This is around the gathering of evidence. This is around, I suppose, the retention of data, how long data can be kept for, um, and what kind of data can be retained. So there was a clear indication that obviously you can't indiscriminately hold data uh, for long periods of time. Um, and there was a particular focus on national security and it's been very important for national security. Um, what we need to wait now really, I suppose, because this is just an initial recommendation, we need to see what the, the European Court will respond with and we won't hear that until the new year. And then obviously our own court, starting with the Supreme Court, will have to... Um, look at that recommendation, we'll have to take that on board and then the potential next step, be it this case or or any other, would be the Court of Appeal. So there's quite a long way to go here. Um, It's extremely complex legislation. I have um, legislation in my department that's paused at the moment because we need to see what the outcome of this overall ruling will be. It's a similar case in other European countries where they've actually implemented legislation and they now have to retract this because of the, 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 the uncertainty that has arisen, arisen over the last number of weeks. So without mm. getting into how it may or may not impact in a particular case. Absolutely. And without talking specifically about Graindwire or that case, uh, can you explain to us uh, just briefly, if you will, the role of the Supreme Court in this? Because if the European Court of Justice accepts the opinion of the Advocate General, surely that is a rubber stamping of what is and what is not European law. Uh, and I'm sure, Minister, you accept that EU law has primacy over Irish law. Absolutely. And, and we wouldn't say anything otherwise, or I wouldn't. And obviously, we will have to legislate accordingly. But what the Supreme Court then may have to do, and this is uh, looking at specific cases, is Uh, take that into account, but also take other factors of particular cases into account. So if we're talking again about a specific case, um, this is one element of a case which may have led to a conviction 
Um, and obviously there are other elements that would always have to be taken into account. But I mean, if there is a ruling by the European Court, we of course have to take that on board. We of course have to, that that, that is the supreme law that has to then uh, influence our own legislation. And, and that's what I will do as Minister for Justice and I will enact the legislation accordingly. But with any case, um, you have to take all factors into account and obviously retention of data is a huge element of work, particularly when it comes to the Gardaí, particularly when it comes to fighting crime. So, you know, we, this is a really important case. This is something that uh, many people are, are keeping a very close eye on. It may have implications uh, across the, the, the justice sector, but I think we, we again have to wait and see what the, the European Court will say and then obviously how our courts will interpret that specific to individual cases as well. Okay, thanks for that, Minister. Uh, Let's talk about uh, COVID if we can. Uh, What are your thoughts uh, this morning? Look, Michael, I I think we're all frustrated maybe that we we find ourselves here where we have such significant numbers again. But I do think we're starting at a different place than we were maybe when I spoke to you even before uh, I went to maternity leave where um, we are now in a position where 93% of adults are vaccinated. We know the vaccine is working. Uh, we also know, however, that it does wane and the efficacy of it wanes after a certain period of time. So I think the focus really needs to be on making sure that two things. Firstly, those who have their vaccination, they get their booster as quickly as possible. But secondly, those who aren't vaccinated, that they that they get vaccinated. And I appreciate there are some people who can't for whatever reason, be it mm. medically or otherwise. But those who think that it's not working, it's very clear that this vaccine works, that it prevents people from getting extremely sick. And while our numbers are much higher, you would expect if it was this time last year, the hospital figures would be, we wouldn't be able to cope with them. But because of the vaccine, uh, we are in a different space. Now, that's not to say there are still too many people in ICU. There are still too many people who are getting seriously sick. So we have to go back to the basics. We have to go back to, you know, trying to... Hmm keep washing our hands, keeping our distance, wearing a mask, trying to reduce our contacts and just minimising the risk and striking a balance. Nobody Mm. wants to go back to to a situation. And I think a lot of people would agree with that and wonder if government policy is in line uh, with uh, what you're saying. And maybe we can come back to that in a moment. But that statistic that Paul Reid gave uh, in that last clip that we heard uh, really was surprising and shocking. That 10% of the people who went to hospital in January needed ICU care and that figure of 10% has gone to 19% this time around. So people who are getting COVID who need to go to hospital are obviously getting much sicker, twice as sick uh, it would seem uh, statistically speaking. And I think this goes back to the fact that the majority of or a disproportionate amount of people who are coming into hospital with COVID aren't vaccinated. So we heard a clip from Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, where he said that, and I think the figures are about 53 or 55% of people in ICU aren't vaccinated. Yes, 7% of our population aren't. So 7% of our population are making up over half the people in ICU so that's why we're seeing that disproportionate number because mm. it's people who aren't vaccinated. And this is, again, why I have to stress for people who don't think it works. It really does. We're seeing people who, who potentially could have been much sicker and who, who could have died, but because they've had the vaccine, mm. um, they are not. But those who aren't vaccinated, that that is the proportion that is making up those very high numbers. And they're making people sick uh, because more people uh, who are not vaccinated are getting COVID and when they get COVID it's more transmissible and it's 
passing on to uh, people with underlying uh, conditions, as uh, the Taoiseach said there, and they're ending up uh, in hospital as a result. Is the government doing enough? Uh, We heard Dr Tony Houlihan at the Neffet briefing say that he'd be in favour of extending COVID certs uh, to gyms and hairdressers and so on. We haven't done that. Instead of needing a COVID cert to go into a a gym where somebody might be breathing over you very strongly, you need one to go into a cinema where you could be sitting miles away from people. Well, uh, what I would say is nothing is off the table. And what we decided uh, on Monday this week was that we would introduce it in a mandatory way for areas that we know people are going to be in large groups, where they're indoors, where they're going to be there for a long time. So the theatre, you could be sitting next to someone for three or four hours in a room that maybe isn't as well ventilated as a gym or as a hairdresser. That's not to say that we won't move in that direction, but we know that obviously through a huge amount of engagement, with any of those sectors, be it personal mm. services, be it the gym and others, that really, really good measures have been put in place, really strict measures have been put in place by those sectors themselves to keep people separated, distance, to keep their businesses ventilated, to make sure that all the measures are in place. Up to a point. You know, the CMO would favour the idea of it being introduced there and elsewhere. I mean, why do people have to work alongside people today if they've not been vaccinated? Why can we not introduce, as they have in many different countries, a requirement to have a COVID cert, either to be immune uh, because you've recovered from the disease or because you've been vaccinated, so that you have a COVID cert, uh, to indicate that there's some sense of security for those you're working alongside. So we do have already, and we were one of the first countries to introduce the COVID cert in a lot of environments, so our pubs, our restaurants, uh, as I said, newer areas where we have large people, large congregations of people gathering. I don't think anything is off the cards at this stage. I don't want to get to a point where we're we're restricting people from going uh, anywhere or doing anything outside of their house. At the same time, what I'd prefer is that those people who aren't vaccinated get vaccinated. And we know that about 1,500 people every day are registering for their first vaccine. Mm. But that in itself, I think, is very positive. And it's about communicating the positive impacts of the, the vaccine. But also, I mean, look, if you're not vaccinated at the moment... You can't go into a restaurant, you can't But you can, home. and this is what we've been hearing. Uh, and there's all sorts of problems with the COVID cert not being policed. Why have they not been policed? Uh, and surely this comes back to you, Minister, and the action uh, that is in your gift to take, should you choose to take stronger action, uh, action and uh, impose uh, higher sanctions on those who break the rules with immediate overnight temporary closure orders? Well, look, you're right. We, we've had this over the last year where we've had quite extreme powers and, and significant powers given to the Gardaí and to others to close premises down immediately. The, the approach that's been taken at this moment is that the HSE and the HSA are engaging with these businesses, um, that the Gardaí are there, obviously, to support them. And there are sanctions in place, there are abilities, particularly if you have... But it's not happening, Minister. Otherwise. It's not happening. You know, and, and people feel... Are quite genuinely trapped in their own homes because of an irresponsible 5 or 7% of the population who won't get vaccinated. People are afraid to go out for a drink. They're afraid to go into a restaurant because they don't feel it's safe, because they don't feel that there is anything that would make you think that you need to be vaccinated to go in there because you go in yourself and you're not asked for a COVID pass. Well, there's two things there. Well, firstly, I would say that I don't think I've entered a place where I haven't been asked for a cert. I do appreciate that that is happening. I do appreciate that some businesses are not complying and I think they're 
you know, they are the ones that are jeopardising mm. all of their other colleagues and their businesses and the potential for, for for problems to arise. But, you know, it's not just about the cert and we've we've discussed this and we discussed it on Monday as well. It's what you do when you get into the venue. Mm. So you might present your cert, but if you go in and you sit on top of 10 people and you move around and you're yeah, not wearing or, a mask. And the or if you're dancing, are, was it wrong so to open the nightclubs? But there's there's a lot of engagement happening with these sectors mm. to make sure that when they ask for the cert, that it's not just that, that when people come in, that the behaviours that happen in those venues, that we're going back to the basics, that we're keeping our distance, that we're not in large groups, we're not mingling between tables mm. and all of these things. Now, you, again, you've just mentioned the nightclubs and people say, well, what's the point of that? Mm. We've probably had our nighttime sector closed for more than any other country in Europe. It's closed again, though, to all all intents and purposes. The nightclubs were closed uh, during the week uh, and uh, will have to close from midnight tonight, uh, which is complete nonsense if you're going to call them nightclubs. So uh, there's also this risk, uh, and a very real risk now, that we're looking at all of the pubs and the restaurants and the nightclubs being closed altogether in the run-up to Christmas, another lockdown. Well, look, we're, we're not talking about that and I really hope that's not where things well, go. Well, if you have 500 people or 400 people or 200 people in ICU, it may be a requirement. There may be no option. Look, I, I think we need to take a step back here. I think if we start talking about this as a, an absolute is going to happen over Christmas, people start to drop their guard and they think, well, it's going to happen anyway. But that was the line the government took last Christmas uh, and we ended up uh, with the consequences in January and February going into March. Uh, this year, people feel that the government is dithering, that it's walking blindly into another lockdown. Uh, and one of the main reasons for that, Minister, is that you abdicated, as a government, you abdicated all responsibility in terms of what's happening in our schools uh, and allowing uh, people to believe that schools were safe when the virus has been running rife in them. Well, two things there. What I would say on the last comment, schools have proven to be safe time and time again. And, and we have, through data and figures, yes, we have had a lot of children and a lot of staff out over the last while, but they have always proven to be probably one of the safer places. That's not to say people can't catch COVID in schools. Of course they can, but a huge amount of work has gone into be it in primary schools where you have pods, where you have the various different classes where there isn't that mingling. But to go back to this time last year, not a single person in this country was vaccinated this time last year. We were in a much different space, whereas this time we have 93% vaccinated. And in terms of the booster, and just I, I want to assure people in terms of the numbers, so we have those who are in long-term residential care largely vaccinated, those who are over 80 are largely vaccinated, those who are over 70 most people I know over 70 have now gotten their, their booster. We've now moved on to the 60s plus and anybody from the age of 18 up who has uh, immunocompromised or who has an underlying condition will be vaccinated. So if you add up the capacity between our centres, between GPs and the pharmacies who are going to come on board again, we'll have about 300,000 people getting their booster every week in the coming weeks. So that in itself is going to make a huge difference to the ability for people to be able to have some sort of a normal Christmas and to go out and about and to socialise. I mean, to go back to the point that you made about being vaccinated or not, yes, you can still pass on this virus, but we do know that it doesn't stay within a person. It, it, it doesn't transmit as easily if you are vaccinated and if you have your booster. So the potential for you to pass it on or to, to, to yourself be seriously ill is much reduced. 
So these are all the factors that are very different to last year. Um, with the schools now, we have a new measure being introduced, particularly for our primary schools, because obviously students under 12 are not getting the vaccine. This is where if a child in a pod is tested positive, um, every parent of children within that pod will receive a phone call to say somebody has been tested positive. Would you like to receive um, the antigen test? Mm. They then can get the antigen test and take that. And then we have a new measure for an entire classroom if somebody is sick uh, and so on. So we're putting these measures in place as an extra layer on top of the testing, on top of the vaccinations, on top of asking people to just, you know, pair back a little bit, maybe, you know, Hmm. Don't 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 go out three nights in a row with three different groups of people. You know all of these type of things that we might often do at Christmas because it's it's Christmas and, and hmm. we want to. But to other people are not going to go out at all. Um, what's your expectation, Minister? Uh, realistically speaking, uh, do you think uh, that uh, next week we'll be looking at further restrictions, or at some stage before Christmas, or do you think that it is actually possible to get on top of it? We do know that in a, a couple of weeks from now we're going to see big, big figures, no matter what happens in the interim. I, I do think it's possible to get on top of it, and I think we've shown time and time again that we can, and I think because of the vaccine, we are in a very different place, um, and I think we need to remain positive, and I think everybody needs to be positive. If we start talking about more lockdowns and thinking that's the way that we're going, I think often it turns into a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's not to say I, I can't predict what things will look like in the coming weeks. Okay. We do have to give these restrictions time and we do have to make sure that we see how they work. Um, but we're not the only ones here. This is happening across Europe. Restrictions are being re-implemented across Europe and I don't think anybody thought that we'd be in this space. But okay. I am positive. I think we all need to remain positive. Minister, thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who's a, a TD for Fine Gael in Meath East. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's go to Nobber to speak uh, to the principal of uh, Skull Own Boshta. Anne Marie McKenna is on the line. Good morning, Anne Marie, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I, I imagine many of us uh, saw you on television last night talking about the problems that you had trying to get a, a substitute teacher, how you went to Facebook and Twitter and social media trying to hope uh, that somebody would be able to help out uh, to no avail and uh, had to ask third and fourth class pupils uh, to stay home yesterday. What's the situation there today? Well, good morning, Michael. Um, I'd just like to say, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. This is an, a huge issue for schools all around the country, not not alone in Meath and Louth. Um, we're good for today. We have a substitute teacher in. Um, but what happened yesterday can't be allowed to happen again. And I think that's the biggest problem. There are just, there are not enough teachers out there for the demand that, that schools have. And under the current circumstances where teachers are having to stay out uh, on leave uh, because of either having COVID themselves or being close contacts. Yeah, between that, between between sick leave. I mean, we're telling children to stay at home if, if they're sick. We can't ask teachers to come in if they're unwell. I mean, we're sitting in classrooms with the windows open, with these, air, with these monitors in our classroom going red. We're opening windows. People are freezing. So it's very hard then for when teachers get sick to say, well, you're okay to come in, but those children need to stay at home because they have a runny nose or they have the sniffles. And then we're the case where we've parents on our staff. If their children are unwell, a lot of them are going to have to stay at home too. And this is, it, this is everywhere. Mm. It's not just here. Mm. And you won't be all too surprised if it happens again on Monday or Tuesday of next week? No, not at all. I mean, I, I had forewarned our, our parents 
Um, we're so lucky here in Aubert, we have an incredible parent community, uh, an incredible community altogether. But I had said, you know, if things get bad, we will have to close. But I said it'll be a last resort. But, mm. I mean, I was up late on Wednesday night. I had to take to Twitter. Like, in 2021, I shouldn't have to take to Twitter to find a sub. But there are no subs. This is the problem. It's not as if they were hiding under rock somewhere. There are just none. There are none available. Oh my God, it's a, a terrible situation uh, and uh, concerning. Uh, but given the circumstance and given the prevalence of uh, the disease, uh, what are your thoughts uh, on staying open for the next few weeks? Uh, would you think it would be prudent or something to consider uh, that uh, the holidays would start early this year? I mean, look, that's, that's a matter for government. At the mm. same time, we're seeing, I mean, uh, in one class yesterday, we had 10 children absent. Like, Be- because of COVID? But no, because of illness in general. Parents right. are mm. so afraid to send their children in when they're sick because we could ring and say, look, can you take them home? Mm. You know, the, with the new Delta variant, you mm. know, the, all the symptoms are, the list of symptoms is getting longer and longer and parents are just afraid to send them in. Yeah. Parents are doing antigen tests at home. They're bringing their children for PCR tests. They're, they're being as good as they can. They're being proactive themselves. They really are. But yeah. we're here mm. with our windows wide open. So mm. children are going to get sick. Mm. Yeah, and you're there with a big <laughs> cohort of people who are not vaccinated, who are not yeah. wearing masks. And of course, with that comes the dangers. But we're being continuously told that it's a very safe environment. Uh, that's changed somewhat to... Uh, safer perhaps than other parts of the community Uh, and now uh, there's kind of a a rowing back on the lack of contract tracing uh, and uh, this new system that's been put in place. Uh, Do you understand it? (laughs) I I was looking at the news last night and uh, Emma O'Kelly is is incredible but Mm. I didn't really understand what was going on. I, I mean I think it would have been better for schools around the country to get um, antigen tests themselves for when a child a parent rings in and says my child is after testing positive and we can then say well these children are the ones in contact remember we don't have pods in place in junior and senior infants now in our school we don't have pods in place at all because our numbers are too big so a whole room could potentially be infected but a teacher is the first one that will know who plays with who who sits beside who who's friendly with who and they're the children that need to be targeted Mm. if we ring up if we get a phone call and say well who are the children that sit beside x they might not be sitting beside them for long enough during the day i don't understand why they didn't say well schools could just give them out we just have a stock of them here and we give them out Mm. And then it's not even mandatory. They don't even have to do them. Yeah, and they they will be available free of charge under some circumstances, if you can understand those circumstances, to children, but not to teachers. But not to teachers. We are in classrooms with up to 30, up 30 plus in our school, unvaccinated people every day. We wear our masks. We try to stay as safe as we can. But when I go into the local shop, everybody's wearing a mask. I'm in there for two minutes and I'm out. I'm in here for five hours a day. And no one else is wearing a mask except all the other staff. And they're all in classrooms. Mm. We're trying to keep the windows open. We're trying to keep the doors open. But it's, it's just not working. And I'm afraid it's only going to get worse. And when you go to visit older relatives, if you do go to visit older relatives or, or neighbours or somebody who has a, an underlying uh, illness uh, who may be vulnerable to COVID, uh, does that play in your mind? Well, I have, I have four small children myself. They go to two different schools. I mean... We're getting calls about parties. I mean, my children aren't allowed to go anywhere at this stage because I'm trying to do the best that I can. And when I go to visit my family, 
you know, you're staying for less time. If anyone has a sniffle, we're not going in. We're sanitising at the door. We sanitise her in the car. I mean, this is the, this is the new language in, in, all, in houses all over the country. It's sanitise. It's masks. And I don't mind wearing them if we're keeping people safe. Mm. But nobody seems to want to keep the school safe. Mm. God. Is that really the way you feel? It is. It, it really is. I mean, it, it's so demoralising coming in every day. And, you know, first of all, you start looking for subs. If you're lucky enough to get some, you're great. And then you have teachers saying, look, this child is, is feeling unwell. And this isn't just me. This is everywhere. Will I ring home? And you're ringing home. And you know by parents, they're going, oh, God, I'll have to. Because they're rearranging their lives, too. Mm. No more than myself. If I had a call on Monday to say that a, a class in my children's school was closed, I wouldn't be here on Monday. So I'd have another class with no teacher. Why do you think this is the case, if you're right? Is it that the expectation is uh, that you're young, fit and well and able to withstand the threat from COVID uh, and that uh, the service that you provide to the community by teaching children is far more important than uh, any risk uh, that uh, you may face because it is minimal? Yeah, I mean, I feel for years, teachers came into work when they were sick. We just did it. We got on with it because we didn't want to let anyone down. I know when a teacher picks up the phone to ring me and say they won't be in the following day, that that has taken everything in them to think they'd be okay to come in. And they're ringing me because they're on their last legs. And that shouldn't be the case, but it's always been like that. Teachers just put themselves out there all the time. And, and we, we don't complain. I know the unions come out. That's not necessarily the teachers. Teachers just want to come in and get on with their job and go home. We love what we do. We love our jobs. We love coming in every day. The crack and the banter with the children coming in the door in the morning is the best part of my day. Mm. But to be treated, you know, so disdainfully by people, it's so hard. You feel sometimes like you're a childminder that you're just, you're an underpaid childminder. If you were to work out the, the hourly rate, I, I tell you, you wouldn't get a 15-year-old to mind your children for that. Okay. We leave there for the moment uh, and hopefully uh, you'll get through the next uh, week or, or two and beyond for that we matter. If you get to Christmas, yeah. Michael, yeah. it'll be great. Yeah. Okay, Anne-Marie. Thank you, for, thank you for talking to us this morning. That's Anne-Marie McKenna, who's uh, the principal of uh, Skull on Boshta in Nobber County Meath. Michael Reed on LMFM. Huge reaction to uh, the interview with Minister Helen McEntee earlier. Mary in touch, uh, one of the many people in touch, saying she's gone into a few places. They ask if she has a vaccine cert. She says she does, and they say that's okay, and they don't check it. Thanks uh, for that, Mary. A serious problem there. Somebody else saying, where the people in nursing homes kept safe? People are delusional at this stage. Uh, I think that is a rhetorical question. Thank you indeed. 93% of uh, people are vaccinated, says somebody. So why are the numbers going up and up? I think it's because it's such a virulent strain of the virus. Uh, and uh, people are not vaccinated. They're catching it, and they're passing it on to others. Uh, another uh, text uh, from somebody who says, why do politicians, especially ones in government, keep saying nobody thought we'd be in this position now? Of course they did. I certainly did. And I've texted your show accordingly, especially in the run up to the 22nd of October. I said we'd be in a mess in a month. And here we are. Even experts in the medical field predicted this, but they weren't being listened to. How dare Helen McEntee say that nobody saw this coming? If that is her belief, it's misguided. Uh, and uh, you'd wonder if she's capable of running the country. They were warned and warned countless times. 
time, says our caller. Somebody else says, uh, the minister also said, because of uh, the vaccine, we're in a better place. We're about to go to the worst place yet with the highest numbers. It just doesn't add, add up. Tom, time in again, says our caller. We're all vaccinated here. Uh, in case uh, you think uh, we're against the vaccination. No, certainly not. Thank you, though, uh, for your call. I think uh, we would be in a much worse place. Uh, They say there would be 10 times the amount of deaths if it wasn't for the vaccines. Uh, Somebody else, uh, a couple of people in touch with me, calling me a a Nazi. This is a a regular thing now uh, from that very small uh, minority of uh, people uh, who are, uh, I don't know, deluded. Um, somebody else, uh, Deirdre and Cal says, uh, these COVID certs should have ID attached to them like a driver's licence, uh, something urgently needs to be done. Well, I think what they're meant to do is look at your cert, ask you uh, for um, your ID so that it coincides with your cert. Uh, Sandra says, I didn't know that COVID could tell the time. I see on social media that some nightclubs are opening from 8pm to midnight. It's beggar's belief. John in Drogheda says, those who are in hospital are not, fa- and are aren't vaccinated shouldn't be there if they're anti-vaccine get them out says John God I don't think you could do that to them although they'd annoy you and although they'd worry you and maybe there should be some other sanction against them John I don't think you could leave people to die like that or to be very sick without treating them Um, uh, you obviously have a different uh, opinion though Um, somebody else uh, Ray says what on earth is Helen McEntee coming on the radio for she's turning out sound bites uh, and uh, not answering a straight question I'm not sure why you say that Ray I think she did answer a lot of the questions Uh, she says you're Show, or Ray says your show is short enough without clogging it up with interviews like that one. Uh, Tom and Evan says 10 to 19 percent. Uh, that speaks for itself. That's that statistic uh, from Paul Reid of the HSE really was remarkable. In January, 10% of the people in hospital needed ICU care. Now, 19% of the people in the hospital need ICU care. Uh, the minister said 53% are in IC, uh, who are in ICU are not vaccinated. So 47% who are in ICU are vaccinated. That's a failure in anybody's eyes, says our caller. I'm vaccinated and so are my family and we need to go back to full lockdown, two metre distance and compulsory mask wearing or uh, this is going to end up very bad. Also, our local pub, walk in, walk out, as you please. It's all wrong and the government are cowards, says our caller. You're right, 47% of the people in ICU are vaccinated and it's terrible. But that's out of... 97% uh, no, out of 93% of the population uh, 53% in ICU out of 7% of the population I think uh, you know where the odds are there but thank you indeed uh, for your text Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, it's uh, five months uh, since uh, the families of uh, people who lost their lives to COVID in uh, the Dalgan House Nursing Home met with the HSE's CEO, Paul Reed, and uh, they have written to Mr. Reed now since uh, that meeting because they've heard nothing back uh, and say they've been met with a wall of silence. Uh, Let's uh, speak uh, to one of uh, the family members, Vivienne McNally, uh, whose dad, Dominic, died during uh, the first outbreak of COVID. Good morning to you, Vivienne, and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Once again, nice to get a a chance to talk to you. You say in your letter you're still seeking the truth and the information on the conditions and circumstances uh, that your loved ones live through and ultimately uh, succumbed to. Good morning, Michael. Um, thanks for having me on. 
Yeah, we are still seeking the truth um, and the information under the conditions that happened in Dalgan. And that was from March to May of 2020. We met with Paul Reid and basically, you know, told him our stories and we're looking to know what triggered the RCSI hospital group to assume operational control on the 17th of April. Um, and Paul Reid is saying he's looking for transparency and accountability now across the board in the HSC. So we welcome him. looking for a long time though, isn't he? Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, and and, and we, we know that there were significant problems, particularly over the Easter weekend of 2020 uh, and the nursing home, uh, as I recall, uh, was calling the CMO and calling the Minister for Health. A very unusual situation, but pleading for help. Well, this is it. Um, there was calls for help everywhere, but as families, this is our problem, that um, none of us knew about this. And, you know, through the freedom of information, we have found out the horrendous conditions that was going on. And we want to know why it wasn't disclosed to us. Um, and, you know, Paul Reid would be able to um, reveal those records to us and let us know, let everyone know. You know, it's always been said truth, transparency and accountability um, is what's needed. And it is. And um it's so unfair. You know, we have no closure and this is going to happen and keep on happening. Our nursing homes need to change. The mm. pandemic changed everything. But we need to trust them and we need to trust our government officials as well. You know, um, yeah. and in light of everything we asked them, what we're asking now is why not, you know, give us what it is that we're looking for. We have gone through every avenue, including Stephen Donnelly, done everything that's asked of us. Um, and we have done the majority of work ourselves, as you know, 19 months. This is hard. This is not easy reliving this mm. all of the time. Um, well, the thing is that ordinarily you'd know the circumstances because you'd be in there. And of course, because of COVID and lockdown and so on, you weren't in there. You weren't allowed in there. And that must be the very fr- fr- frustrating part of all of this uh, because... Uh, you don't know the conditions that your dad and uh, the other residents were living under. No, we don't. And, um, you know, we have, as you know, we have sought the freedom of information. We do know yeah. some of the conditions. And without going into it, but, you know, it's not very nice to read. But um, everyone was under pressure. We understand that. You know, we're all human. But it's... The, why wasn't their health given all across the board? But mm. as families, you know yourself, if you have a loved one, and not seeing them for six weeks, mm. I mean, the only time I was lucky enough to see my father, um, you know, for a few hours before he died. But still, it's the heartbreak to know we could have helped. Mm. So, um, and it's, it's, 22, it's 22 families uh, who are asking questions, isn't it? 22 uh, people who right. passed away. There is, and there's more families, there's more people have come up, you know, and said that their loved one had passed away Mm. and they believed it was from COVID. From us bringing awareness about this, you know, we could all end up in nursing homes. We know that, Michael. Yeah, and we know what happens when you end up in nursing homes. Uh, You need an awful lot of assistance and care. And, I mean, that's kind of par for the course in nursing homes. And if Dalgan House was ringing the CMO and the minister over yeah. the Easter weekend because there were no nurses. There was yeah. no staff. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Then you have to wonder how many people were neglected and to what extent were they neglected because an awful lot of nursing home residents need uh, assistance with some of the most basic of things. Exactly. The most basic of things being hydrated and, you know, to go around and give everybody water um, because blood pressure is all associated with it. There was no way physically possible this could have been managed when we look at the staffing levels. Also, when we look at the, the carers hmm. that were out to, you know, everyone across the board down to cleaning staff, the whole way through, if you have one nurse hmm. on at night, I mean, we know. So this is where... Were they fed? Um, were, they brought, were they brought to the toilet? Were uh, they cold? Uh, well, this is it. I believe that um, some, some were able to make phone calls to their loved ones. Now, my father wouldn't have been able to do that. He never used a mobile phone in his life. But they were able to describe to some of the families in this group how sick they were feeling, how, hmm. um, you know, dehydrated they were, how their food was cold, how they could not manage to get to the toilet or help themselves because of the rain. And there was no one to assist them. So if you're lying there... Um, you know, to turn you. And it's also, mm. Michael, a huge thing, the mental health. Yeah. It's the loneliness. Mm. I mean, to know and, that and a lot of the people that And a lot of the people that you're talking about are confused to begin with. Uh, and yeah. you're talking about confusion on top of confusion a million times over. Were they able to get out of bed? Uh, if uh, there wasn't somebody to help them to get out of bed, did they try to get out of bed? What happened then? Were they left flat lying on the floor? This is it. And the fear... This is what breaks my heart when I look back and think of my father and also other loved ones. Not knowing what is going on in the world. Um, I mean, what was the condition? Was my father trying to get out of bed? Was my father um, looking for a drink of water? We are talking about basic human needs. And in a nursing home that we trusted implicitly. Um, And if you cannot meet those needs... You pick up a phone, you ask, you know, families, look, it, we are in dire straits. We know they're in dire straits. On the 13th of April, there was a teleconference. I was stood outside, Michael, that day. It was my father's 80th birthday. And I was told he was fine and he was sleeping. Now, that's not fair to think that that's okay in this day and age. No. It's, it haunts me. It really does to know I could have helping, if not in the facility, whatever was needed, whether it be bin bags, sanitizers, thermometers, give me a shopping list, would have gone and got it. And to be told, you know, no, this wasn't the case, whereas Freedom of Information shows this. We have, um, you know, medical records that are just, oh, to, to read them is, is just heartbreaking. So... Paul Reid needs to understand this. Everyone needs to understand this. This is to go along. We, you know, we're doing this 19 months. We're not going to stop at this stage. Heartbreaking and all as it is. But we have a fantastic group that have stuck together. We are looking to make change that this never happens to anyone again. Anyone that has dementia, anyone that needs a nursing home facility, that they can trust their basic needs are going to be met, you know, and um, that's what we are hoping to establish and that Paul Reid will hear this and he will release the records that we are looking for. And accountability, transparency is the whole way across because he knows, he says, there is some harm that can be done. 
you know, and mm. this is across the board with everything, with everyone in every walk of life. But where it's done, then change it. And that's what we need is change. Yeah. We need to trust our government. We're coming into a fourth wave. You know, we don't want, I would never, nor would anyone else, want to see people go through what we're going through now. I know. Well, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you, you, you've you made it very clear. You understand that the circumstance was dreadful and that you can't undo that. Uh, but what you want is somebody to recognise what happened, to take uh, responsibility for what happened, uh, for there to be accountability uh, uh, for what happened uh, and for systems uh, to be put in place uh, most importantly to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Yes, to, to let us know, to you know, an investigation, an inquiry into this and then the findings from that, people will learn. Isn't this what life's all about? Yeah. Every day is a school day. We need to learn what went wrong. How can we prevent this happening again? This is what it's about. Um, it's Caring for our loved ones as we get older. You know, I have an elderly mother now too as well. And you'd never want to think I'm going into a nursing home and that if a pandemic, you know, was to hit again, that they're not even going, we're not sure if they're going to get a drink of water, if they're going to be taken to the toilet, if they're going to be bathed, if they're going to even be spoken to, or they're going to be left, you know, lying there heartbroken and fearful on their own. That, that's, it, it just should never have happened. It did, but it should never happen now again. Okay. And that's why we need this. Vivian, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, we'll ask the HSC for a response uh, to you and uh, the other families uh, following on from uh, the letter that uh, you've written uh, to Paul Reid. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you'll get a response yourself, uh, but we'll follow it up at our end too. Uh, and thank you indeed uh, for coming on to the programme and making your points uh, because they're important points for all of us as you say at some stage in our lives many of us uh, will need nursing home care or indeed the people we love and thank you indeed for joining us today That's Thanks very much. thank you that's Vivian McNally uh, whose father Dominic uh, passed away in Dalgan House Nursing Home Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, last week, uh, Children's Health Ireland were in front of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Health uh, to talk uh, about HSE funding, which it's hoped will expand paediatric orthopaedic services uh, at CAPA. Uh, and indeed, uh, the problem for children with scoliosis was discussed in detail. Conor Green, a consultant paediatric orthopaedic surgeon, uh, told uh, the committee uh, that uh, the care of children with scoliosis in this country is inadequate. But he also said that that just represents about 20% of the patients that they deal with and that the care of children with all other orthopaedic conditions is just as bad. In ad- order to adequately advocate for my patients, my colleagues, uh, I need to leave you with a very clear message today that the care of children with scoliosis in this country is absolutely inadequate, but the care of children with other orthopaedic conditions is just as bad. And that becomes alarming when I tell you that scoliosis only represents about 20% of what myself and Professor McCormick do. And therefore, actually, the real crisis is not in scoliosis. The real crisis is in everything else. So... As paediatric orthopaedic surgeons, we see children with a huge potential to contribute through their abilities to Ireland in the future. 
But these abilities are being destroyed physically and psychologically uh, by inadequate access to care. We're talking about children with spina bifida. These children, they're amazing, intelligent, mature children. And while these children have been waiting for surgery, they've gone from walking independently to using wheelchairs full time. They've gone from participating in school to staying at home full time. And they've gone from wearing shoes to sitting at home with open sores. And these aren't isolated conditions. This is a, this is a group of children. Right, uh, that's a consultant uh, paediatric orthopaedic surgeon, Connor Green. He was speaking to the Oireachtas Health Committee. Now, the Louthmead branch of spina bifida hydrocephalus has written to the Minister about uh, some of uh, these problems. And we'll hear more about these problems now because all of this is a very familiar story to Gareth Fitzpatrick. He's uh, the father of Connor, who has spina bifida. And a very good morning to you, Gareth, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. What we heard there uh, from that surgeon sounded like something out of the dark ages, I think, uh, to many of us. Uh, But that's what you're living with. Absolutely, Michael, and thanks for having me on this morning. Just to clarify, the actual letter was sent by the Paediatric Advocacy Group, um, which is a group of parents, and not by spina bifida. I just happen to be... um, the chairperson of the local group, just to clarify, the, 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 the letter came from the parents' group and not from actually Spina Bifida. Apologies uh, for the confusion, OK. No, no that's fine. Yeah, um, of course, well, I mean, just, you know, on our own situation, Connor's a seven-year-old boy who goes to um, mainstream school, um, hits all the heights, um, you know, was walking um, up until, you know, very recently. Um, Connor's been waiting for foot correction surgery since 2018, um, his Connor's heel has never actually t- touched the floor, um, so you know he was wearing um, AFOs um, in order to uh, allow him to, um, you know, to be, to put his foot into a shoe and to to actually you know become be a, a, a young boy like all the rest of his friends and play and do stuff like that there. So he, he up until very recently he was in the summertime he was cycling on a bike he was you know doing everything a child can do to now actually have an open. Um, pressure sores and spending most of his time in a wheelchair. Mm. You sent me some photos of the pressure sores. Uh, I have to say, I flinched looking at them. They look terribly painful. Yeah, um, they are terribly painful for him. And you know, um, you know, he doesn't complain. And most parents will tell you of the children of children with with disabilities that they don't complain. They just get on with it. You know, they're great young children and young adults and you know they just they, they just get on with life they just want to be normal children they want to grow up uh, you know enjoy their childhood mm. uh, but to uh, um, spend life in a, a wheelchair or at least uh, a portion of his life uh, and uh, God knows how long that will be that that must be very hard to contend with uh, uh, psychologically yeah psychologically like he asked the question of us on a daily basis um, you know, when is my surgery going to take place? Because obviously he's been down for surgery since 2018, but it's been cancelled on one mm. or two occasions. Um, and and like he he shouldn't be in a wheelchair, should he? Absolutely not. He shouldn't absolutely. be in that pain, should he? He should not be. He should not be. And as I said, you know, uh, listen to Conor Green, you know, to say something very briefly. Conor Green talks to children the way they need to be talked to. He explains to children the procedures that need to be done. He explains what needs to be happening in a very compassionate and, you know, very loving way. You know, the children respect Conor Green very much. Mm. They respect what he's trying to do for them. The man's 
hands are completely tied. You know, they're completely tied of the fact that he wants to do the surgery on children. You know, I mean, currently, Michael, to have 82 families, uh, Connor being one of them, you know, to be on a waiting list, um, you know, that's only 82 families that are on a mer- what's called emergency waiting list, which means that the surgery that they need is is something that they need, to, you know, to, to, be, to, 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 to live, to act as children, you know, and this surgery is, while it's not being carried out, is making it very dangerous for these children into the future and mm. is, is causing and will cause irreversible effects. Physically or psychologically or both? Both. Yeah. Absolutely both. Yeah. Absolutely what about both. the physical? I mean, uh, is uh, Connor um, developing something now that is irreversible? That's the, that's, that's the million dollar question. I mean, I mean, because Connor actually was very mobile, to try to explain to a seven year old that you can't, to, to, who sits looking out a window at children playing on the green that he used to play with, and he's now been wheeled out by his brother or, you know, by his friends, you know, in a wheelchair to sit watching them, is heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking for us, heartbreaking for him. And just to make things clear to people, like, uh, when you have a child with a disability, it doesn't just affect the child with a disability. It has a detrimental effect on all of the family, including the siblings. They all have to sit by and watch the, 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 the brother or sister or whoever it is deteriorating in, in front of their very eyes. Mm. I'm sure. Uh, and what about the house? Uh, I mean, uh, how are you coping in the house with the wheelchair? Well, I mean, um, yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, what we do is we 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 have a ramp that brings her in and out of the house, and you know, obviously the house is not modified for 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 a, for a child in a wheelchair, um, and we just make do the best we can. But my wife and I, you know, my wife is the is the full time carer for mm. my son, um, so she she is the one that actually you know does all the day to day stuff with him you know and mm. it's, it is difficult there's no doubt it's difficult and he's a big boy I mean at seven um, you know you, you'd expect a, a level of independence and I take it that's been denied to him and uh, the back of my mind with all of this is that it, it seems very unnecessary uh, that surgery would rectify the problem but uh, I take it uh, in order to get to the toilet uh, at least he, he needs help uh, in order to wash himself shower himself and that sort of thing he, he needs help too yeah absolutely he needs help and we're talking about a child that up to the summer months was doing all of that on his own riding he bicycles riding bicycles showering himself yeah. going to the toilet on his own going in and out of the, ho- the house on his own playing with his, playing with his friends doing all of that you know this is, this mm. is and this is this is a problem throughout the country the harrowing stories that you see and you read about, about children who are very capable and Mr Green ma- mentioned it mm. these are the children of the future of this country mm. many of these children will go on to make very significant uh, things to this country you know and they're being very very badly treated mm. Yeah, Irish citizens, as he, he was referring to them, uh, and how the state is treating them. What is uh, the problem? Uh, is it a lack of funding? Is it a lack of uh, theatres or expertise, surgeons? Well, uh, well, if, 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 if I take you forward to yeah. some of the points that I have here, I mean, uh, to give you, you know, without moving too far forward, yeah, no. the, solution, the solution to the problem yeah. that we see as a, as a group of parents is that we have two fantastic orthopaedic consultants in Mr. Green and Professor Damien McCormick who've done all the hard, hard work for Paul Reid and Stephen Donnelly. They've figured out how to fix this problem. They've costed it at 5.1 million, found the space in Kappa Hospital, and all they need is to be given the green light 
Families needed to be funded, to be approved, to make a huge difference to a child and to other people on a waiting list. Because remember, Michael, the 82 people that's actually on the list for emergency surgery, those people, as we speak, waiting for appointments to come through the door, phone calls for their children to go to be assessed by these consultants, who then will go on to a waiting list. So, I mean, it's not just the 82 children that we're talking about for this particular thing. And if I bring you back to what Mr. Green actually said, he believes that if these, these, these uh, things were put into place in Kappa Hospital, it would reduce the waiting list by up to 400%. Five million. 5.5, million. Yeah. It's a pittance. It's a, it's a pittance yeah. uh, when, when you think about the amount of money that was spent in this country on different other stuff. You know, come to mind, mm. yeah, you know, um, electronic voting machines, 54 million. Mm. Um, you know, stuff like that. It's very, very hard for us as a, as a parents group, mm. you know, to, to, to actually sit back mm. and, and watch this, you know. 24 billion, I think, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, 24,000 million uh, being spent on the health service, 5 million. Uh, in terms of uh, the state's overall spending, really is nothing. Of course, it's a huge amount of money, uh, but it's going to be spent over a period of time. Uh, and as time goes on, uh, if some of these conditions aren't reversible, undoubtedly uh, patients will deteriorate and uh, the cost will be all the greater. And, uh, yeah, uh, if, if I could, Michael, just yeah. briefly give you some particular facts, yeah. that, you know, maybe of relevance to your, to, to your listeners. Yeah, I'd you really know. like you to do yeah. that, Gareth, yeah. Ireland has the highest rate of spina bifida in the world per population. Well, why is that, right? you know? <laughs> That's the question. I mean, more mm-hmm. and more, I mean, I mean um, more and more children seem to be, to be born with the condition. Um, mm. I'm no expert in what... Um, historically, children with spina bifida have been treated appalling by the state. Mm. Like, I mean, there's some harrowing stories of reports I've read uh, going back as far as mother and baby homes. Not that I'm going to go into that today, mm. but that's uh, what we're here to talk about more recent times. But that's the fact. Mm. Yeah. And our children, because of the condition, deteriorate faster than, any, than a typical child. You know, and just to go back to a particular report, in 2014, Temple Street published a report that said care for children with spina bifida was grossly underfunded, understaffed, and a failing to children like Connor. So since that, there's been no, little or no progress in this. You know, mm. the facts are that the limbs are becoming deformed, are becoming maimed and disfigured. For Connor's particular position, we have been told by... Uh, consultants, you know, and different consultants, not particularly Mr. Green, that if Connor's condition was to deteriorate over a period of time, we could be talking about amputation of his foot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, mm. You know, and, and as I said, is we're being fobbed off with excuses mm. that this is COVID and this is cyber attacks. These waiting lists were as bad in 2017 in 2018 and 2019 and will get worse. Yeah, I don't know. I thought I had a few things to worry about uh, when I woke up uh, this morning, Gareth, uh, but it seems inconsequential now. Um, your family really have uh, been left in and a terrible place. And Michael, if I could just yeah. you know, end on a couple of points. Yeah. I do appreciate yeah. the time you Go given. ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I just want Connor and other children like Connor to be, to, to be able to live to their capabilities, not to be in pain and to have an actual childhood. I don't think that's too much to ask. This country has failed children repeatedly in the past. And I'm not going to stand by, or we are as a family group, I'm not going to stand by and allow people like Connor to deteriorate when you have doctors and surgeons like Connor Green uh, willing to do the surgery. Just let them do the work that they're paid to do. 
So I'm just asking Michael, uh, if, if possible for your listeners, to put themselves into our shoes as parents and, and to support us by contacting local politicians in your area, so i.e. the Loudmead area, and demand as the government provide finances to help our children. Connor. We will not accept that our children's futures will be discussed in a task force or a committee. We are demanding action now and we will continue to fight on until this happens. Okay. Well, if uh, the politicians uh, want to bring more attention to it, uh, they're welcome to let us know and uh, we'll certainly give them a platform uh, to do that uh, and we'll ask the Minister um, to respond to you as well. Um, I'm not sure what else we can do for the moment except uh, ask people to respond if they feel uh, they would like to uh, to what you've just said there, Gareth. Um, yeah, and they can co- contact, but feel free to, to, to have our details. You do have our details. Yep. You have the, the copy of the letter that was sent. They can t- contact our secretary or contact me locally if they want to, um, to, to discuss it further. And, but this campaign will go on and we're not go- as parents, we're not going to stop. Okay, thank you, uh, and uh, um, well done, Gareth. Um, you've spoken brilliantly on behalf of Connor. Uh, I hope you don't mind me saying that, but uh, you've really taken us all aback uh, this morning uh, through the strength that you've shown in advocating for your son. And thank you Thanks for very much, Michael. Thank you very much, thank you, thank you. That's uh, Gareth Fitzpatrick uh, telling us about his son Connor, and indeed some eighty other children, for that matter. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, today is Adult Safeguarding Day. It's the first ever Adult Safeguarding Day, whatever that is. Uh, let's find out, will we? Uh, Patricia Rickard Clark is uh, the chairperson of Safeguarding Ireland. Good morning to you, Patricia. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. And indeed, you've been surveying people to see if uh, they understand what safeguarding adults actually means. And uh, there is some misunderstanding, is there? Indeed, Mike. Good morning to you. Uh, yes, as as we normally, when we're trying to raise public awareness, and a really, uh, it's really necessary that people do understand what our safeguarding is. Uh, so we did a survey, and while uh, two thirds of the people had heard of the term, uh, most of them didn't understand what it was. Uh, many people associate safeguarding with very functional roles, like providing security at care facilities inspection and audit of health services, etc. But they didn't see it as planning ahead for healthcare and finances, making an enjoying power of attorney, making sure that our rights were respected and putting in place arrangements to ensure that our wishes are known by people and that our rights would be respected. Okay. And who has responsibility for all of that? Uh, well, we all have. Uh, we all have to take responsibility, but it's really important. That's why we have a number of organisations uh, today getting together, trying to uh, raise this awareness. So ourselves, um, but very importantly, we need a piece of adult safeguarding legislation. Uh, we need a legal framework uh, to be put in place uh, to provide for the prevention uh, of harm, uh, exploitation, um, neglect. And uh, another survey we did last year uh, indicated that uh, 12% of adults said that they had experienced adult abuse in the previous six months, and one third said that they had experienced it in the past. So really high levels um, of abuse in our society um, perpetrated on very vulnerable adults. Uh, And again, uh, the HSC have produced their report, their adult safeguarding teams have their, uh, produced their 2020 report there uh, recently and in, indicate again 
that, uh, again, we all think of abuse happening in hospitals or institutions or whatever, but actually most of the abuse happens in the community, mainly in our own home. Mm. And again, huge misunderstanding and again, mainly immediate family members. So we need people to understand if they are actually, you know, uh, dealing with abusive behaviour or not respecting a person's rights, that they understand that and that, that, that again, we need a legal framework to deal with that. And there's many different forms of abuse. Is that what you're talking about? Are you talking about psychological abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse? Uh, yes, uh, coercive control, psychological abuse, undue influence. Um, really, and again, a survey we did last year indicated very high levels of coercive control and psychological abuse. And that would be replicated actually in the figures by the HSE as well. Um, And of course, control and coercive control and uh, abusive behaviour permeates all other types of abuse. If you're being financially abused, you're under the control of somebody else or somebody else making Mm -hmm. decisions about how you spend your money, etc. And again, even, uh, you know, for, for older people, we see levels of sexual abuse uh, and that's hard to understand, but it does happen. OK, so, there are times, though, when people will need to make decisions for you, whether that's uh, about uh, how your money is spent or other things I- in your life. And that's a, another issue that you're raising, uh, as well as the issue of wards of court. Indeed, wards of court will be, thankfully, um, uh, gone away with uh, in 2022 when we have the full commencement of the Assist- Decision-Making Capacity Act. So we need to plan, again, another survey that we carried out uh, about two years ago indicated only 6% of us had planned in advance for a time where we were unable to make decisions for ourselves. So we need to put in place things like an injury power attorney or an advanced healthcare director or a case of care decision, but we nominate somebody we trust and who is suitable to make decisions and know our wishes. Uh, and that's really, really important. And we haven't done that and we need to do that. And again, awareness amongst ourselves that we do that. And again, people think that it's only older people that should be making those arrangements. Mm. But it's actually, uh, we all should be doing it. We, we, you know, sometimes we have mental health problems that we're in bad spaces at times that we're not able to make decisions for ourselves. And we should have mechanisms and push arrangements in place to take care of those situations. We may have a bad accident when we're very young or whatever. Mm. And again, really important that we have nominated and we don't end up going through a court process where somebody may be appointed Really, we would not have chosen ourselves if we uh, had the decision to make. It's a, a not uh, human nature, though, or, or, or something that uh, you learn from your life experience that uh, there are these things that you face into. Uh, uh, in due course, uh, most people will face into something like this at some stage in their lives, uh, but... Uh, when you're older, you realise that uh, because of your experience in life uh, and uh, when you're younger, uh, you've other things on your mind. Uh, yes, but in other jurisdictions, they've had campaigns to educate people to say, you, we all need to put plans in place. A lot of us actually, when we buy a house, we're informed or advised uh, to make a will. A will only takes effect when you're dead. You've a lot of living to do. Uh, so it's really important that when you're living, that your wishes are known and that they can be then respected. And what happens then if your wishes aren't known, abusive practices take place. People step in, make decisions that you wouldn't necessarily uh, be in agreement with. Uh, so it's really important that we do. So in many jurisdictions, they've had campaigns. In Scotland, for example, they had a campaign a few years ago, and up to well over 50% or 60% of that population has EPAs in place, 
we're down to 6%. Mm. Um, so we, we, we really need to uh, be aware of the issues that arise. And also, if we could, even on a temporary... Oh. Um, I'm sorry, Patricia, the line is breaking up on us there. Yes, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, so we need healthcare professionals to know again mm. what our treatment wishes are. Okay, uh, and you're uh, hoping uh, that uh, uh, all of the voluntary organisations will sign up uh, to a safeguarding charter. That's right. We've uh, issued a dra- draft charter, and again, it's about uh, treating people with dignity and respect, and promoting equality and inclusion, um, and ensuring all policies and procedures pr- promote people's rights. So we're hoping uh, a lot of organisations will sign up to that, and we'll have that in place shortly. Okay. Well. It is very important, uh, whether we're too young to realise it yet or, or not, um, but it is very important and something uh, that uh, may uh, come very close to home uh, sooner than any of us uh, would ever contemplate. Uh, and uh, it's something to reflect on today, Adult Safeguarding Day, the first of many, no doubt. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Patricia Rickard clark is uh, the chairperson of Safeguarding Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. There will be events around uh, the country on Sunday to mark World Day of Remembrance uh, for road traffic victims. Uh, It's an event uh, that was first celebrated in Drogheda after some research done by Michael O'Neill and together with Father Iggy O'Donovan, they brought about a day that is very important in the calendar for the huge amount of people in this country who are part of a very, very sad club that reflects on the loss of life on the roads. Father Iggy O'Donovan is on the line and good morning to you, Iggy, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. And indeed, it is a a very important and special day for you yourself. It was. um, In fact, I recall when we first... In fact, Drogheda was the first place to start this particular commemoration and it was one of the girls in Green Hills who drew my attention to the fact that there was an international day for road driving victims. Could have said I'd never heard of it. And we found it wasn't marked in Ireland at all. And so we actually, it was 2006 uh, that uh, 15 years ago this year that we started it. Uh, Michael O'Neill had had his tragedy. Uh, Michael and his family mm-hmm. there in Silog. Uh, to, to some few, few years earlier, two thousand and two, uh, I think. Yeah, yes, and and yes, Dominic and Fiona, and she had been. I remember Michael's daughter Fiona mm. had been a past pupil of mine in Greenhills. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so that was uh, that, there was a personal connection mm. there. Lost their lives the day before in they were meant event, to go to Australia. Yeah. Yes. In any event, um, yes, it doesn't bear thinking about that no, particular no, tragedy. No. But in any event. Uh, when we got it launched in Drogheda, which was unique in Drogheda that year, mm. it didn't happen elsewhere in the country. And but since then, it's become a sort of a national event. And I think it's the, the national one now is in Knock and Mayo. Mm. But it was it was it was Drogheda who set the scene, if you like. Mm. Uh, and it, it's a great show of solidarity uh, between uh, people uh, who can identify with how other people are feeling. Absolutely. And uh, one of the other things that, you know, to look for the bright side of things or the silvery lining in a dark cloud, uh, it's hard to credit that 40 years ago, 50 years ago, there were three times more people killed on the roads in Ireland than mm. there are today. Mm. Three mm. times more. Mm. And would have been 20% of the traffic then? Mm. I know there's other explanations, but the big part of it is our is the attitude 
to uh, better driving and yeah. safer driving. I haven't got and, the and, figures and in front. Of, yeah, I haven't got the figures in front of me now, but I, I know that if you go back to the 1970s, one of the year there was eight or nine hundred people died on the roads. It, 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 it was it was incredible. Mm, yeah, yeah, that yeah. When you think of that, most mm. families at the moment there was maybe one car to a house. Now yeah. you have three or four uh, and many houses. And you'd be speeding at forty miles an hour, but you might have six pints on you. And that was the other well, side yes, of it. There, there was there, there was the yeah. old um, mm. you know that that old myth. Uh, your man, he drives much better when he's slush. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. See, you know, or, or the fellow who the fellow the fellow who had to drive the fellow who had to drive home because he couldn't walk. Yes, and uh, you know, and uh, so later on, then the guards became so unreasonable they expected us to be sober. Yeah. but certainly the attitude has changed, and but, I think that has made. Uh, because nowadays, mm. if, if, you, if you see somebody drinking and you know they have the car, you're likely to pass a comment, or they're likely to pass a comment to mm. you. But you also raise a, a, a another part of uh, what uh, is important about uh, World Day of Remembrance for road traffic victims, because nobody wants that knocker on the door, or nobody wants someone uh, to be on the side of uh, the road uh, being uh, looked after by the emergency services or a priest for that matter giving the last rites as yeah. the case may be oh and, yeah and, uh, and uh, I have seen some pretty awful mm-hmm. things including my, my, my own family I remember yeah. taking a phone call that my brother had been killed in a car crash mm. and uh, so no, it, it does come home to you the same day I remember I was talking to a group of students mm. and giving out to them for the way they were playing basketball this was a big event for me and when suddenly this news arrived in the middle of it and suddenly you put things in perspective. But uh, uh, the, but it's absolutely true, Michael. And the other thing is, when it, is it passed the United Nations, the mm. unanimously, a rare thing, where every country on earth voted in favour of, of the, having a designated day, the third Sunday, third Sunday of November. Yeah. And it's, but certainly, if it highlighted a situation, which is important, secondly, it drew attention to the importance of this particular you know, our attitude to driving. Mm. And thirdly, it's very important, I think, for bereaved families. I was very touched there in Drogheda and indeed elsewhere since I left Drogheda to meet bereaved families and how they come and rally together mm. and they with each other on a day like that. Absolutely. None yeah. more so than mm. Michael O'Neill, who has done so much. Yeah. And to recognise uh, the guards, uh, the fire service, the ambulance service, uh, and all of those who are oh, working yes, at the, the front the, time the, as well, the first responders, yeah. it's a great word mm. we're, all, mm. we're all learning now, and particularly in recent months with COVID and so forth, mm. what the people at the coalface are doing. But the guards and the firemen and the medical services have been facing this issue for decades year in, year out, and uh, so that the, it, the recognition for them is so important as well. But I think that this is a, it's, it's a great thing that it's actually being marked, that it's international, that there's a brotherhood mm. or a, a sisterhood, what do you like to call yeah. it, mm. in all of this, that, that uh, because car tragedy and road traffic tragedy doesn't see national boundaries, it doesn't see religion, it doesn't see politics, it's simply that awful reality which is there. Okay. And it is a, a moment for all of us uh, to look at our own behaviour as well and to think about uh, our safety and the safety of others every time we get into a motor car, as the oh, case absolutely. may be. But, it, right. but it, it is heartening that the situation has improved so much in this country. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Far a 75% reduction, that at a time when there's maybe 10 times more cars, mm. 
Now, okay, roads are better, but above all, the attitude is better, and I think that has been vital. And uh, so, so I'd be, I'm optimistic on this particular one. Very good. Uh, yeah, which is something. In, uh, and God, goodness, Michael, I was listening to you earlier on there, along, mm. and there's, there's a lot of tough stories and bad news. Yeah, yeah, we had a yeah. tough morning actually. Uh, now that you yeah, mentioned, yeah, strike yep. me as went on. I said, God, you, you know, Iggy, you have it easy. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, I mean, listening to uh, that young boy, uh, Connor, uh, and the yeah. situation. He, he's in which uh, seems totally unnecessary uh, as I said uh, to his father Gareth earlier on yeah. I woke up this morning thinking I had some problems but didn't know how lucky I had it and they yeah, seem well, inconsequential when, when you, you mm-hmm. spoke about I think looking at a picture of wounds or Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, oh my God, goodness sake, yeah. I could see it literally here in my room in Temporary. Yeah. You know, it was it was very powerful radio, yeah. and uh, I didn't quite catch the name, but my God, it was it was powerful radio. Gareth Fitzpatrick. I think a lot of Gareth people were taken yeah. taken aback by what Gareth had to say in the program all right yeah. this morning, yeah, and uh, made us all realise uh, that some of the problems that we worry about aren't really problems at all. Uh, Iggy, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Michael and to all the NFM and the Bindsiders there. Very good. Always good to talk to you. Thank you indeed. Father Iggy O'Donovan. That's our programme for today and indeed uh, for this week. I hope you have a lovely weekend and that you're able to join us for our next programme, which will be with Ken Murray on Monday morning, God willing, at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.